I want to begin this morning by asking a rhetorical question, and it's this. If we had a judge and jury here to put you on the witness stand to give your testimony, what would it be? If, you had, if we just set up the stage like a courtroom and you had to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, put your hand on the Bible, what would your story be? What would your testimony be this morning? I'm curious what you'd say, and I'm curious what we would say about what you would say. I'm guessing that as we listen to each other's stories, there'd be a, a range of emotions, because we've all been through different things, right? There, there'd certainly be some, some moments where we were all surprised, like, wow, I didn't know that about that person. There'd be, there'd be times, I think there'd be times when we would laugh together, because there are things that are just funny, that just happen. And, and the courtroom is a great example to see this. I read about something recently where it was a civil claims court, and a, a man was, had been arrested for uh, stealing a woman's purse. And they're in court there, and, and she was trying to recover the damages from that experience. And, and um, she's on the witness stand telling the story of what happened to the judge. And the judge asked her, is the man who stole your purse in this room? And she said, yes, that's him, and pointed at the guy, <laughs> at the defendant. And at which point he burst out, you couldn't see my face, lady, I was wearing a mask. Real smart, all right? And there's that, so there's times we'd laugh. There'd be other times that we, we'd probably cry together because not every story's funny. Not every story is happy. Maybe your testimony would include the plot point where you never felt loved by your father. I mean, last week might have been a really hard day for you, you know? There's a lot of people here when they come to church and they hear us talk about God as Father, the last feeling that they have is a warm fuzzy. Because dad was harsh and mean or he was cold and distant or maybe he just wasn't there at all. Maybe your testimony would be how, how you've you know, been trapped by the same struggles and sins year after year after year. And, and you might be sitting there thinking like, man, I've been through four different recovery programs and I just don't necessarily, I don't think it's making a difference. Like, I feel like I take two steps forward and 1.85 steps back. I, you know, righteousness begins to sound more like a burden than freedom. Maybe your testimony would focus on how you've got this one person in your family or your friend network or, or your neighbor that you just cannot forgive no matter how hard you try. And you come to church and you hear us talk about forgiveness and, and the whole time in the back of your mind you're thinking, you don't know what that person did to me. Maybe your testimony would center on how frequently you feel depressed or discouraged. You come to church every week, you hear us talk about people living a victorious Christian life. And you're like, who are these people? I don't, I don't know them. It's not my story. You know? But you wish you knew them, because that might give you some hope for your story. Or maybe your testimony would be how you've struggled to have a consistent relationship with God. And I've known a lot of people who walked with the Lord for a long time that that was part of their story. Like, they'd do okay for a while. Maybe they'd go to a conference or a convention or a concert. They'd get all amped up, all fired up again. And then the fire would slowly fade. And it would be hard to keep that fire for God burning hot. And over time, you begin to realize, I think I'm, 
I think I'm bored with God. And don't even get me started on serving. Did I just, did I hit a plot point in your story? See, if that's your testimony, I want to encourage you to listen closely to God's word today because he wants to speak to you from it. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, is uh, verse 1 through 12 is where we're going to be today. Thank you so much uh, for those of you here in the room. Grateful that you uh, came here this morning. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. I want to encourage you, especially if you're like at a point in your personal life where you're like, I watch online because gas is so expensive and I, I need money for food and meds or whatever. If, that, if that's you, I just need to, I want to encourage you, take a couple extra steps, fill out that connection card, comment in the chat, stay engaged with us digitally. If, if you need to do church online, we get it, but if you need to do that, fine, but it just, it takes a little extra work from you to stay engaged, and if you're here in the room, you got to fill out your connection card, that helps us pastor you better, okay? So please, please help us do that. A couple things to let you know about uh, first of all, we mentioned last week that our brother, former Chapel Rock uh, staff member, Dean Dickinson, went to be with the Lord um, recently. His family had a very well, small kind of private family ceremony this past week. They're going to have a larger public one. The information about that is in your bulletin, and so you can check that. Also in your bulletin uh, is the Chip In for Chapelwood announcement. That, that program starts today where we're going to be collecting stuff for Chapelwood Elementary School down the street. Uh, it's a way that we can bless the kids in our neighborhood. So, uh, and you're going to be handed a bag. If you didn't get one when you came in, the, the brown paper bags as you walk out the door uh, to be, be collecting stuff over the next month or so for Chapelwood. And then there's a serving opportunity. If you want to be part of the Flapjacks 5K to be a course marshal and help people know which way to run, um, you can do that. All that information is in your bulletin. The one thing that's not, because I just found out about it this morning, is uh, the Make Waves event uh, this afternoon. Uh, for preschool age kids, uh, so kids in our early early childhood ministry, which is supposed to be at Williams Park Splash Pad in Brownsburg, they're not open today. <laughs> so we just found out this morning. So uh, it is actually going to be at the uh, Washington Park Splash Pad in Avon. So 115 South County Road 575. Um, so just you know on your way to Danville basically. But uh, so it's not. If you got one of these cards, you got a preschool age kid. Uh, it's not at uh, Williams Park, it's at Washington Park, okay? So same time, but just in Avon, not Brownsburg. Wanted you to know about that. We're concluding our series called Love John today through uh, the letter of John, the apostle, to the church. These are people that he knew personally, but he's also, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really writing to the broader church community, and therefore to us. So this letter, while it was written to a first century church, is also to us. Like, we should view it as, as, as written to us because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And John wants his beloved children in the faith to live an authentically Christian life in the world. And, and we know that these are people who are dear to him because he uses this phrase, dear children, or dear friends, sometimes by older translations, translated beloved. Right? These are people that he knows. He, he cares very much for them. And it's a bit of a structural device. When John uses this, he's either switching to a new topic or he's going back and catching an older one. Like it's something he's talked about before, but he's, it's like ripples in a pond. We're going back to that ripple as it expands, right? Our text for today is the only one in this series where that phrase does not appear, but it, it pops up after our passage. At the very, the very last verse in John's gospel, he uses this phrase again. Look at this, John 5.21, or 1 John 5.21. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Now, why would he say, it's the coda, it's the very last thing he says. It's his closing remark. Not like, have a great day, God bless, hey, don't worship idols. (laughs) Like, what is going on? Well, here's the thing. He's going to spend the first 12 verses of this chapter almost, in in a way, revisiting nearly every thematic ripple we've talked about so far. And, And he wants to help them establish their testimony, their story. The story of what God has done in their life and through them. And so what he tells them at the very end, he says, dear children, it's this last little remark. He says, don't, don't create this great story and then blow it by worshiping idols. And so it's this, it's this final warning in love as a father to his children saying, hey, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. We dropped Evan off at Camp Allendale this past Sunday. That was the last thing I said to him before we walked out the door. He's 10. I said, remember who you are, remember whose you are. That's what he's doing here. Keep yourselves from idols. Don't blow your story. Don't blow your testimony by worshiping something that's not God. He wants us to live an authentic Christian life. Let's look at what he has to say. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Look at this with me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. Look at how clear he's being here. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what's your story? If you were on the witness stand, how would you give your testimony? John is incredibly concerned with our testimony in this passage. He uses the word translated testimony 10 times in four verses. Like it over and over and over and over again. You should get, be familiar with this by now. That's kind of how John writes his stuff. This is a, it's a courtroom word. And when John uses it, he's talking about how the life of a witness is the content of their testimony. Let me say that again. The life of a witness is the content of their testimony. Here's what that means. The way you live your life is a statement. It's a testimony of what you believe to be true. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of the band Casting Crowns. The lead singer of the band, Mark Hall, said this. He said, you can say what you think, but you live what you believe. Wow. I absolutely agree. You can say what you think, but you live what you believe. So what does that mean? Well, this might get uncomfortable, but let's be real with one another for a second. Every sin we've ever committed, we did because we believed it would make us feel good in that moment. (laughs) 
This is, I, this, sometimes I think this is hard. You've never committed a sin against your will in your life. Now, you might have been driven, felt driven to it by circumstances, but it's not because you didn't think that was what you wanted in the moment. Every relationship we've ever damaged, we did so because somewhere deep down, we believed that our desires in that moment were more important than the relationship. Every time we've ever stumbled and fell, it's because on a fundamental level, we did not believe that God designed us to have victory in that area of our life. Oh, John is, is clear about these things. He says, when we sit in heaven's courtroom, we find out the word of God and our own experience confirm that our testimony, our own story by ourselves without God, is insufficient to give life. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes concluded, right? In Ecclesiastes, he talks about life under the sun. What's that even mean? It's code for in a world without God. And he goes, it's meaningless. There's no, there's no meaning. There's no point. It's not enough to give life. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. We have good news for you this morning. It's our big idea. When you believe in Jesus, he changes your testimony. He gives you a testimony that will give you life and life eternal. So what do we need to change our testimony? I think in this passage, John tells us there are two qualities we need to change our testimony. The first is faith. That faith changes our testimony. The idea of faith or belief brackets this whole section of 1 John. Over and over and over again through, for, through the letter, John instructs his dear children in the Christian experience that, 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 that being a Christian has a specific content that we must believe. Now, you can have differing opinions about matters of conscience, but there is, at its core, a certain core set of doctrines that you have to believe and put your trust in to be a Christian. I want you to notice that he tells us that our victory that has overcome the world is our faith. That the story of who Jesus is and what he has done is what has overcome the world. The content of the gospel, the core of the good news about Jesus has won a decisive victory over a culture that is hostile to God. I, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Every societal ill that we faced that we face can and, and will be solved when we bow the knee to Jesus. Every single one of them. And, and some of you are like, how is that even possible? I don't know, <laughs> but God does. And he says so, and John says here, his testimony is greater than ours. I'm going I'm to go with him on that one. John tells us that if we don't believe what God has said about his son through his word and through the spoken witness of the church, we're basically calling God a liar. By the way, not a good idea. So what is the specific content that we're supposed to believe? Verse 7, verse 8 tell us that it's, what, it's this, that Jesus Christ has come by water, by blood, and by spirit. And the scholars go round and round on what John means here, and I don't know why. Because like he also wrote a gospel. He seems to make it pretty clear in the gospel what he's talking about. The water there, in context, clearly a reference to baptism. Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. Blood there, I think, a reference to his incarnation. He took on flesh, right? And he shed his blood for us when he died on the cross in our place for our sin. And the Spirit then, which was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost... What is he saying there? He's saying that, that God has invited us to, to 
die to ourselves and be resurrected like Jesus was, yes, in the flesh even, and to experience this life of God through the Spirit in us, those things testify. They give testimony. They tell a better story than our story by itself. What I'm saying is this, when we believe in Jesus and are baptized, which in this text means believing everything the scripture has to say about him and responding to the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin and rose again on the third day, when we do that, we come under his testimony because his spirit lives in us. That's what John means by faith. It's a much more comprehensive picture than just intellectual assent about God. What this is calling you to is not just agreeing with the truth of history that Jesus was a real person. It's way bigger than that, way more, it's way richer than that. C.S. Lewis said, we never know how much we really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It's easy to say we believe a rope to be strong as long as we're merely using it to lift, to tie up a box. But suppose we were to hang by that rope over a precipice, a cliff, Wouldn't we then first discover how much we really trusted it? Can I illustrate that from the news? A lot of people for a long time have said that they're pro-life. And that belief is tested then when their daughter comes to them and says, Daddy, I made a mistake. That belief is tested when the doctor says to them in the exam room, If you carry this pregnancy to full term, you may not live through it. And so now we are in a place in our culture where our belief in this is going to be tested. I'm going to say more about that at the conclusion of our service. I just that's the elephant in the room. We're going to acknowledge it, right? Okay, we need to talk about it, but I feel like God's put this message from 1 John 5 on my heart first. So we're going to finish that. I'll come back to this, okay? So hang with me after the service. And we'll talk about the Supreme Court decision this week. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. On Judgment Day, when you stand before God, you want Him to be pleased, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. The correct answer is yes. Your eternity is hanging in the balance. The right answer is yes. See, it's not enough to simply agree with history that Jesus was a real person. Because what scripture says about him is true, we must respond with our our faith. We have to respond with faith, but that's not the only piece of our response. See, the other thing that John tells us here in this text is that what changes our testimony is not just faith, it's also obedience. That obedience changes our testimony. Another way to sum up the first couple verses of chapter 5 would be to put it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is God's son, dot, 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 does something about it. I don't know what you're reading in your devotions or quiet time or time with God or whatever you call it. But I've been going through James. And it's been incredibly enlightening for me to look at, at James and 1 John at the same time. I guess I didn't realize until recently how much overlap there is between the two. Now, they come at these truths kind of from different angles. But there's a lot of overlap between the two. The practical, James is kind of blue jeans and work boots theology, right? And John is incredibly reflective and philosophical. But, but they're not in disagreement at all. In fact, there's very much a a set of correspondence between the two. Both of them essentially are saying, listen, accepting the truth 
of the content of the gospel means accepting the authority of the gospel through a life of obedience to God. If you believe that what this says about God is true, that automatically puts you under his authority to tell you how to live. I really want you to grab this, church, because this is, I think this is going to become ever more vital in the 21st century. If you believe that what this says about Jesus is true, that automatically puts you under the obligation to live like that. You are under its authority. If you're going to say, yes, what the Bible says about Jesus is true, you are placing yourself under its authority to tell you how to live. And it should not surprise you to hear me say that love for God and obedience to God are directly related. You cannot say, I love God and not love what he loves. Now, you can say that for horizontal relationships with other people, right? But you can't say that to God. Let me illustrate this. Um, I know that my wife, Debbie, loves me. She's given me every reason to believe that. Not only has she told me, but she's proven it by more than two decades of married life. I know that she loves me. You know that, that I love her, yes. One of the things I also love in this world is the Lord of the Rings. She hates it. She doesn't have to love it to love me. She doesn't, like, like I, you know, this big, giant, epic conflict, light versus dark and good versus evil, and you got elves and you got orcs and dragons. Yuck. She just thinks it's all just gross, right? And, I, you know, her idea of conflict is a love triangle in a Hallmark movie. It's not mine. I need something a little bigger, a little more, a little more steak on it, but okay, thank you. I don't doubt that she loves me, though, right? I, I've never doubted that. She didn't have to love what I love. And that's a second order love, certainly. But that's not the same with God. John is telling you that you can't say I love God and not love what he loves. Why? Because God is God. And, and, and here's why. His love, what he loves, is objectively right. Everything God loves is objectively right true and right and good. Why? Because he's God. It comes with a job description. Everything that God loves is good. What does he love? Truth, mercy, righteousness, justice. Everything that God loves is true and good and right. And you can't say, I love God and not love what he loves because his love is objectively right. Now, I don't want you to sit there and think, well, there goes a preacher laying a guilt trip on us. John doesn't give you that luxury. Look at verse 3. Love for God equals obedience to his commands. Really can't make that simpler. (laughs) Obedience to the commands of God is not a burden. It is rather an experience of victory. Listen, if you're struggling with a particular sin, you need to lay claim to this truth and hang on to it for dear life. Some of y'all are wrestling with something right now, and you need a white-knuckle grip on this verse. Obedience to God's commands is not a burden. John is telling us that because we have faith in Jesus, and that changes our testimony, right? It changes our story. His life is in us. And if his life is in us, he empowers you to live a life of obedience. I want you to hear me. Obeying God is not a weight that we drag around with us. It is the expression of our victory over the world. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five 25, or Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is the purpose of a yoke? To tie two creatures together so that they can pull together at the same time. If Jesus is giving you his yoke, you're on one part of it. Guess who's on the other part? Jesus. He's pulling with you. This is a yoke that fits right. It's not a burden. It's custom carved for your neck. It's custom carved for you to serve alongside Jesus. He's calling. Obedience is not a burden, church. Think about this. I want you to, in your mind, imagine the holiest person you ever met in your life. I want you to just get a picture of that person, the person who's most like Jesus that you ever met in your life. Did they walk around through life going, boy, it's so hard to be a Christian? No. No. They were full of life and vigor and joy and power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because obedience is not a burden. It is victory. Living in obedience is expressing the victory that we have through Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross. And therefore, we should encourage one another with our story. That's what we mean, church, every Sunday in our benediction. If you're new here, we say a benediction together every Sunday when we leave to remind us of what we're about. That's what we're talking. When we say a change to wholeness is the story we share, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Sharing this story, talking about places in our life where we have conformed our life to a life of obedience to God because love for God is obedience to God. We can only do it because of faith. That's the only thing that allows you to even do that. But that, that ought to change the way we live. That's our testimony. John Gibson Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He was translating the Gospel of John into the native language, and he was struggling because he could not find a word to, to translate the English word believe, which appears in the Gospel of John over and over and over and over and over again. Here's why. The, the, the people that he was ministering to were basically a tribe of cannibals. And as soon as you became too weak to contribute to the life of the community, bye. As a result, there was no trust in that community at all. Like nobody, can you, can you imagine why? Nobody trusted anybody. They didn't have a word for trust. They didn't have a word for believe. And he's trying to translate the Gospel of John where that word pops up like 148 times. I don't know, it's a lot. And so he was thinking about it and praying about it, and, and he had a, a helper who was part of that tribe who was helping him do this translation work, and he was sitting in a chair at this little makeshift desk that he had, and he was, he, so he's sitting down, and he, he had an idea. And he was sitting there, and he said, okay, um, he picked his feet up off the floor, and he said, what, what am I doing right now? His feet were pulled up in the air. What am I doing? And this person who was part of this tribe told him, he said, you are resting your whole weight on the chair. He used a word that meant to rest your whole weight on the chair. That's what I'll do. So he chose that word to translate our word believe, to rest your whole weight on Jesus. 
And church, I'm concerned sometimes that we try to build a testimony for God where we're resting on something other than Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this morning, everything else is going to burn. Everything else is, is, will, will fail. He won't. You rest your whole weight, the whole testimony of your life on Jesus, and it'll last. Did you hear me today? When we believe in Jesus, he changes your testimony. That is the core of the gospel. That's the good news of, the, of what Jesus Christ is all about. And if the Apostle John were here at Chapel Rock this morning, I think he would, he would want to reiterate this one more time. He would want you to hear this whole story. That He would testify. He would tell this story that God created the world and he created it to be perfect. And he created us to be perfect and to obey him out of, in love and freedom. But starting with Adam and Eve on down through you and me, we each have rejected that freedom by choosing our own broken desires over God's perfect will for us. The Bible calls that sin. The Bible says that because of our sin, we are by nature objects of God's wrath, deserving of divine justice. Because of our sin, we are in a hopeless situation. But because of his great love for us, God sent Jesus to take away our sin by putting himself in the place that we deserve to be, substituting his perfect life for our broken one on the cross. That's the good news. And this good news gets even better because not only did he remove the punishment of law, but he gave us the gift of his presence living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that if we believe in Jesus, not just that he existed, but that everything the scriptures says about him is true, if we place all our trust and faith about him, in him, if we, if we rest our whole weight on Jesus, to confess his lordship, to be baptized, to receive the spirit, to walk in discipleship, we will have our story changed. When you believe in Jesus, he changes your testimony. I don't know what testimony you brought in with you today. I know for a fact it's not perfect. Neither is mine. I desperately need Jesus to change my story. And you do too. And maybe you've just hopefully come to the point where you're ready to admit that. If you've followed the Lord for a long time, maybe it's just simply even as we sing in a moment here to say, yeah, I, I recommit your life to that. Maybe you've never made that decision or you've never made it public. Maybe you decided in your heart at one point, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, but you've never like, made that testimony. You've got an opportunity to tell people that part of your story today. As we stand and sing in just a second, I would invite you to come forward and make that part of your story to say, yeah, I want to testify. Dear ones, John says, testify. I want to testify that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And, and you place your faith in him, acknowledge him as Lord, be baptized, receive the Spirit, walk in discipleship. Maybe you have a prayer need, something that's been just chewing on you. We'd love to pray with you today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you. Now what? <laughs> that's the question that's been running through my head. What do we do now? For nearly 50 years, a huge segment of the American church has been praying and working, and praying some more, to see a day come when abortion is outlawed in our land. And many would say, that's happened. The reality is it's gone back to each state. 
to determine for its, its own. Um, what do we do? I think for a lot of people, like, we worked and prayed and worked and prayed and worked and prayed and kind of took my surprise. Like, whoa. I mean, that's certainly what's been on my mind for the last couple months since this draft opinion from the Supreme Court was leaked. Um, been reflecting on that a lot. And I'm not going to pretend that my opinion is any better than anybody else's. Um, I sure hope, though, that those who know me would, would doubt neither my commitment to the full personhood of the unborn or my love and compassion for those who find themselves um, with an unwanted pregnancy. So what do people of faith and goodwill do? I'd like to offer four keeps, four things we need to keep. Um, I just, I want to try to resource you today. You're probably going to have some conversations about this this week, whether you want to or not. And so I, I want to try to equip you. That's part of my job. <laughs> and, and so I think, what do, we, what do we do? I think four things, four things we should keep. Here's the first one. We should keep working and praying. We should keep working and praying. The work of prayer and praying about the work um, accomplished this victory. And I do call it a victory. But by no means are we done to throw a party or to spike the ball, as it were, on this issue is callous, it is spiteful, and ultimately it is just not helpful. And if we're not careful, we may win the battle but lose the war, culturally speaking. See, here's the, the reason why is that the law changed before hearts and minds changed. And I would have reversed that if I could have. I think it would have been better for our society to change hearts and minds first before the law changed. Um, that would have been a greater and, in my view, better victory. There's still a lot of work to do. And there's five decades of anger and animosity to overcome. So we keep working. We keep praying. Let's focus on winning hearts and minds to the idea that all life has intrinsic value because God created it. Secondly, keep your convictions and your friends. Keep your convictions and your friends. The enemy has used this issue to divide and distract God's people from the work of making disciples for almost half a century. And we have far too often fallen into his trap of making this fool's choice of choosing between our convictions and our friendships. And here's the thing. Jesus never did that. His convictions were always held with absolute rigor. But his priority was always on relationships with people. And so I would urge any Christian, but especially you Christians who are part of Chapel Rock, to not yield on your convictions about the sanctity of life that Scripture so clearly teaches in so many places. And the idea that all life is sacred. All life for the whole life, thank you very much. But to also heed the command of Scripture, what James says, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Especially if, like me, you're a guy. You might want to keep your your opinions to yourself for a while. Just listen more than you speak. 
your friendships, especially with women who may have had an abortion, should inform how and when you share your convictions. So keep your convictions and your friendships. Thirdly, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Church, our, our job is not to fight for Supreme Court decisions. Our job is to make disciples, period. <laughs> and, and we need to keep the main thing the main thing, but we need to keep the main thing the main thing on this issue too. We need to lovingly help people stay focused on the real issue, and the real issue is this. How many people are we talking about? The issue is not women's reproductive rights. It's not bodily autonomy. It's not even whether or not Roe versus Wade was good jurisprudence. Many current legal experts think it was not. The issue is what Jeremiah says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Which, by the way, Isaiah uses the exact same phrase and applies it to the entire people of Israel. How many people, are we, the issue is how many people are we talking about? One or two? If we're talking about two, which is what I believe, that changes the whole calculus on this issue. Because if that's what you believe, that's what I think Scripture teaches, by the way, but if that's what you believe, then, you know, a baby in the womb has every rights of a person, and at least in the United States, because of the Bill of Rights, they're guaranteed the right to live. Other people in our culture believe that this unborn person is not fully human or that its rights and even desires are, are totally subordinate to the mother's. And so here's the thing, church. This conversation about rights is going to be unproductive until we agree on how many people we're even talking about. So I'm just urging you not to get sucked into that trap because the enemy wants to use it to divide and destroy. Keep the main thing the main thing, right? I will continue to advocate for the full personhood of the unborn, but also for our representatives in the Senate and in the Congress to define in federal law when in the gestation process those rights are recognized. If it was up to me, it'd be day one. That may, it may not work out like that. I would pray that it would be, but you need to understand that, that barring that, at least in my opinion, the only thing that's going to end this argument is the return of Jesus Christ, which Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. but don't get sucked into the trap of not keeping the main thing the main thing. There's one more keep. You need to keep the babies. And I don't know what will happen here in Indiana when it comes to abortion. Current elected officials seem to indicate they're more focused on violent crime and that they're not going to prosecute on this issue. It is interesting to me that our culture seems to not make the connection between the rise of crime and our culture insisting that a person in the womb is not a person. I think those things are related. I think when you devalue life in its outset, you devalue life for the rest of it. And it wouldn't shock me at all if there was a strong correlation between the acceptance of abortion as morally acceptable and the rise in violent crime. When you don't care about life at the beginning, why should you care about it later? Something tells me that sadly, I-65 to Chicago is going to see a lot more traffic in the coming days. 
I've said this before. If you want to hear more about this, you can re-listen to the sermon embodying radical hospitality in the Family Values series. I think it bears repeating here. We've been saying for 50 years that abortion is wrong. I believe that. I know that God can forgive that. You do realize, right, that, that half of your New Testament was written by a former murderer. God can use that story. He can redeem it. He can do something beautiful with it, as, as hard and painful as it is. We've been saying for 50 years that abortion is wrong, and it is. But now that it's going to be increasingly not an option for some, or maybe much more difficult, church, are we going to put our money where our mouth is and keep these babies? Hmm? I mean, if, if the time comes to it that you have to say to a young woman, please, have your baby. I will raise it. Now, I think simultaneously, church, we need to, to advocate for adoption to become faster, cheaper, and easier. It has to, we got to do, we should have done it years ago. We're, we're behind, behind the ball on this one. That has to become easier to do also. Church, will we, will we learn to acknowledge that, the, that there are, there's a manifold sins that lead to this. It's not just one mess up and one night of passion. It's many, many sins that lead up to this moment. We learn to acknowledge that those are ever at the heart of this issue while at the same time showing profound love to the mothers and fathers facing this new reality so much so that they would trust us with their children. We gotta keep. We keep working, we keep praying. We keep your convictions and your friends. We keep the main thing the main thing. We keep the babies. That's what we do now. So, let's get started. Would you, would you pray with me? I'm going to go to my knees. If you're free and flexible enough to do that and want to join me, I would invite you to, to share in that posture of humility, but it's not necessary. Let's pray together. God, creator, you originated life on this planet. You spoke and it came into being. And it is our conviction here, Lord, at Chapel Rock, at least among our leaders, that every life that exists is in response to your sovereign will. There are many, God, in our culture who do not share that value. We would pray first and foremost that they would, they would see that truth, they would align their lives to it and name you as Savior and Lord. Barring that, Lord, we would ask that you would make our position winsome and that we would express the sanctity of life with love and a generous spirit. We would never allow that to take the place of making disciples. And as important as the issue is, Jesus, we want to focus on you and giving you glory in this world because you're worthy. Help us do that, Lord. Let us keep, help us keep our priorities straight and our voices calm as we engage in the public square on this issue. We love you, Jesus, and we don't, we don't want to shame you as we advocate for the things that are important to you. You said, let the little children come to me. We know that you care about babies, Lord. You became one. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would help us 
share your heart on this issue. That we would focus on truth, yes, but just as much on love. And we would, we would balance those things. We would have both of them like you did, Lord. We desperately need your help in the coming days to live what you are calling us to live in this moment of time that we find ourselves. And we do echo the prayer of Scripture. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.